The following is a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. Would you open your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 9. We do have communion this morning, so please be thinking about that. We will partake of that together, Lord's table, at the end of our service. But before we do that, we want to come to Matthew chapter 9 this morning. We have completed our study of the nine miracles of Jesus in Matthew 8 and 9. We've looked at his miraculous works. Next week, we are going to dive into Matthew chapter 10. We're going to look at the second of Jesus' five discourses. Remember that there are five speeches or sermons by Jesus in the gospel of Matthew. We've already seen the Sermon on the Mount. Next week, we come to the second discourse. It is the missionary discourse. As Jesus sends his disciples and apostles out into the fields for harvest. Before we do that, though, we come to the last four verses of Matthew chapter 9. And they function as a summary of the last two chapters and as a transition to Matthew chapter 10, but they do more than that. They give us a window into our Savior's heart. This morning we get to see the tender heart of our compassionate Savior. These are not just filler verses, they're not just verses to get us from one chapter to the next chapter. These verses really give us a a window into Christ's heart for the lost, his compassion for people who don't know him, a tender heart, a soft heart for sinful and hurting people. This is what we get to see this morning in verses 35 to 38. Follow along as I read these verses. Jesus was going throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. These are some of the most glorious verses in the Gospels. Because they tell us what our Savior was like. And they reveal his divine motive for ministry. Why did Christ do what he did? Why did he come to earth? What compelled him? What drove our Savior in his public ministry? That's what these verses tell us. They tell us what he was like and the people that he served and ministered to in his day, but they do more than that. They point beyond the people of his day to today. They show us his heart for you, for me. He deals with the present needs of the people of his day, but they point way beyond those things and they reveal his heart, not only for the lost people of his world, but for the lost people of the world in general. And so we're gonna see 
this morning a glimpse of our Savior's heart. You're going to be encouraged as you see His compassion. And you're going to be challenged by His example. I want to give you this morning four demonstrations of Christ's tender heart for people. Four demonstrations of Christ's tender heart for people. And as we go through this, I want you to ask yourself the question, do I have this heart? Do you have this heart? Do you have the heart of our Savior? When it comes to the lost people of this world, are you devoted to people? Are you committed to ministering to people? Are you compassionate and tender-hearted like our Savior was toward lost and distressed people? This is what we need to ask ourselves as we see His heart for those around Him. Let's go to these four demonstrations. Number one is the commitment of Christ to God's mission. The first demonstration of Christ's tender heart for people is his commitment to God's mission. Come to verse 35. Notice what it says here. Jesus was going through all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. This is a summary statement of what Jesus has been doing since the end of chapter 4. It summarizes what he did in the preaching of the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7, and it summarizes what he's been doing all throughout chapters 8 and 9. He was serving people. In fact, as we've seen, particularly in these last couple of chapters, Jesus was rarely alone. He was inundated. Everywhere he went, there was an entourage of people. Everywhere he went, there were needs. There were people following him, people flocking to him, people that were attracted to him. The spectacular nature of Christ's ministry drew people in. It it, it brought people to him because of what he was saying, because of what he was doing. So he was never alone. He was always surrounded by needy people. And we said he never turned anyone away. Not one person who came to Jesus in need was rebuffed. Hold your finger here in Matthew 9, verse 35. Keep in mind what I just read to you a moment ago. Back to, go back to Matthew chapter 4. In verse 23, I want you to notice that Matthew introduced the ministry of Jesus that we've seen over the last few chapters with almost the identical phrase that I just read to you in verse 35 of chapter 9. So go back to Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. It says, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, 
and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. Here's Matthew introducing to us the next stage of Jesus' ministry. Now come back to Matthew chapter 9 and verse 35. Notice again the identical phrase. Jesus was going throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. You hear it? Identical sentence. This is a literary device known as an inclusio. They're bookends. And everything between those two bookends supports the theme that's contained between them. And so in Matthew 4.23, Jesus, or Matthew introduces us to the nature of Christ's ministry. As we come to Matthew 9.35, he summarizes what we've seen in Matthew 5 through 9. Basically, Jesus came to do two things. He came to proclaim powerful words, and he came to demonstrate powerful works. We saw in Matthew chapter 5 through 7 in the Sermon on the Mount, his powerful and authoritative words, his preaching. And we've seen in Matthew 8 and 9, his powerful and authoritative works, all which confirm that he is exactly who he says he is. And he came to devote himself to people. So look at me at verse 35. Look at what he says, Matthew, at the beginning of this verse. Jesus was going through all the cities and the villages. He's in Galilee. Remember, Galilee is in the northern part of Israel. Southern part is where Jerusalem is, and the, and the religious leaders were really stationed primarily in Jerusalem. Jesus decided to focus his ministry in the northern part of Israel, in Galilee. Josephus tells us there were probably close to three million people. Three million people in Galilee, 204 cities, averaging 15,000 people in each of those cities, puts the population of Galilee at about three million people. And Jesus went from city to city, village to village, to serve needy people. Notice it says he was going. Verse 35, Jesus was going throughout all the cities and villages. That that means this was his habit. The way it's written in the original language means this is his character. This is what he kept doing habitually, continuous, ongoing action in the past. It was his habit to constantly be engaged in ministering to people's needs. Everywhere he went, he was speaking powerful things and he was doing powerful things. Notice the three things that he was doing as he was going about. He was teaching in their synagogues. He was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And he was healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Three things that Jesus did in the course of his public ministry. Notice the first one. He was teaching in their synagogues. Everywhere Jesus went, he was teaching. Teaching was one of his primary activities, one of his primary responsibilities in his earthly ministry because Jesus knew that you have to understand some things in order to come to him. 
In other words, we could say that Christianity is objective. There are things you must know. It's not just emotive. It's just not, just not feeling driven. It's not just some show that you attend. No, Christianity is cognitive. And if you don't know certain things, you're not going to be in Christ's kingdom. You need to know who God is. You need to know who you are. You need to know the entrance requirements into his kingdom. You have to understand objective content. There are certain truths that have to be communicated and certain truths that have to be understood if you're going to be a part of his kingdom. So this is what he's doing. Everywhere he's going, he's teaching. He's communicating. He's proclaiming content. Because the people needed to be taught. They didn't know their Bibles like they should have. They should have understood these things because the, the Old Testament proclaimed the Messiah. They said he was coming. And so they should have understood from their scriptures exactly who Jesus was and what he was saying. But they didn't understand those things. They didn't know those things. Added to this is they had teachers and leaders who were not teaching them were not faithful to feed them, not faithful to shepherd them, not faithful to communicate that objective content. They twisted the scriptures for their own purposes rather than feeding the sheep. They were fleecing the sheep. So the people needed to be taught. They didn't know the scriptures as they should have, and they weren't seeking out biblical truth as they should have. Does it sound like today? People don't know their Bibles like they should. Certainly that's true outside the church, but even within the church, people do not know their Bibles like they should. The church today entertains the goats. They don't feed the sheep. And I would ask you this morning, do you understand the Scriptures? Do you know them well, and if you wonder why we do what we do as a church, this is why. We're a teaching church. It's why we have men's training. It's why we have women's training. It's why we have a theology class. It's why we have equipping hour. It's why we have small groups. It's why we preach. We're a teaching church. Why? Because you must start with the mind your, your minds must first be informed. You must think correctly if you're going to live correctly. So that's why we do what we do. It's why we are a teaching church. Because that's where the true power in ministry comes. And if you want to know what a healthy church is, a healthy church always is committed to faithful teaching of God's word. Where you have faithful churches, you have faithful teachers. This is what drives us. Our elders are to exhort in sound doctrine, Titus 1 says. 1 Timothy 3, they're to be able to teach. Ephesians 4 says God has given us pastors, teachers. Because we have to know and understand truth if we're going to live it. 
It's interesting. You may find this interesting. We've gotten some feedback over the years. Been here 18 years, and some people have said, you know, your church is too much of a teaching church. There's not enough worship. Do you realize what compels worship? Proper teaching. We've had people say, you know, your church is not, they don't do enough fellowship. You know, every single time we gather for teaching, what happens? Fellowship erupts. Sometimes I can't even start my theology class. You all just keep talking. (laughs) Teaching drives worship. Teaching drives fellowship. So Jesus came teaching in the synagogues. Notice the second thing he did. He was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Caruso, preaching. He came preaching. He came proclaiming. He came speaking forth the gospel, the euangelion, the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ. He was bold. He was authoritative. He was unashamed about the fact that there is one way to heaven, and it's through Christ and him alone. That is the good news of the gospel. He came as a herald to proclaim these truths, the news about there is forgiveness in sin, from sin, there is forgiveness from death, there is forgiveness from doom that awaits all of us. Christ came bringing reconciliation with God and adoption into God's family. He didn't come speaking about economics or politics or social issues. Christ came to preach the gospel. The need to repent, to submit your life to Jesus Christ, to embrace him as Lord and Savior. It's no different today. This is what faithful churches do. They don't tell stories, appease the masses, show videos to make people feel comfortable. Faithful churches will preach the gospel. And if it offends, it offends. We can't be offensive. But the pure, unadulterated word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, will step on your toes. As it should. It should call us to repentance and acknowledge that we are sinners before a holy God. And so Christ came to boldly herald forth this truth. Notice thirdly, he came healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. The teaching and the proclaiming are powerful words. This one speaks of his powerful works. It's what we've seen all throughout Matthew chapter 8 and 9. Christ came to display the fact that he is God in human flesh and all of his miracles and all of his healings and all of his powerful works confirm the fact that he is exactly who he says he is. He is the Messiah. Hebrews 2 verses 3 and 4 say, after it was first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard God also testifying with them by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. All of that authenticated that Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be. Notice what he did, verse 35. He healed every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. 
We believe that Jesus, for the most part, eradicated sickness and disease in Galilee in his three-year public ministry. Never has there been a healing ministry like Christ. And it was done because he was devoted to people. He invested himself in people. People were his mission. He came to meet their needs. He came to to serve them. He came to minister to them. And he ultimately came to rescue people. And he gave himself, sometimes to the point of exhaustion, to serve desperate people. He's given us an example. And I want to ask you this morning, do you follow this example? He didn't just leave us here to be comfort worshipers. Jesus did not save you, rescue you, adopt you into his family for you to coast the rest of your life until you get to heaven. That's not why you're here. If you know Christ and you love Christ and you have been transformed by Christ and you are the recipient of his abundant mercy, you have been shown this great grace to now spend and to be spent for the cause of Christ. To minister, serve on the behalf of the souls of other people. You say, it's, it's not easy. No, it's not easy. You say, it's hard. Yeah, it is hard. You say, um, it might cost me something. Yeah, it'll cost you everything. It might make me tired. Yeah, it'll make you tired. You say, it's kind of messy when you get involved with shepherding people. Absolutely, it is. And what greater thing could you give yourself to? Being an ambassador of Jesus Christ being used of the Lord to go devote yourself to hurting people. That's what God has designed for us. That's why you're here. That's why he's left you. You're here to live a life to the glory of Christ. Listen, if he wanted you to live a perfect life with him, he would have taken you already to heaven. And he's not. He's left you here. And the reason for that is so you can devote yourself to serving people, ministering to people, And giving your life away just like Christ did. We're not a savior. We're not a Messiah. We're not perfect. We're not redemptive in any of our works. But he's given us an example to follow. And the question I pose to you this morning is, are you following Christ's example? When someone says, I'm struggling, can you meet with me? What do you say? When someone says, I got so much to learn seems like you're walking with the Lord. Would you disciple me? What do you say? No, I can't. I'm too busy. I got other things I need to do. Or do you say, yeah, absolutely. I would love to serve you. This is what Christ came to do. He, he came to devote himself to people. That's number one. Number two is the compassion of Christ for distressed people. The compassion of Christ for distressed people. It's verse 36. 
Why did Christ come with this attitude? What compelled him to serve people this way? What what drove him in his heart like this? Why was he so willing to give of himself, so willing to spend and be spent for the cause of the kingdom and for the sake of the gospel? What was it? It's his compassion. Look at verse 36. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them. Because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. I love this verse. You you get a window right here into the heart of Christ. And if you want to know what drove him, what compelled him in his public ministry to be so willing to meet so many desperate needs, this is it right here. This is the heart of our Savior. He was compassionate. And notice it says, verse 36, he saw the people. He saw the lame legs. He saw the blind eyes. He saw the deaf ears, the mute tongue, the demonized mind. He saw all of that. And his heart was sympathetic towards those things. He he saw the effects of the fall in those people. He saw the diseases. He saw the sicknesses. He saw the illnesses. He saw their affliction. He saw their sadness. He saw their sad state. And his heart went out to them because of that. But he saw more than that. He saw what was in their hearts. He saw their blindness. He saw their lostness. He saw their sin. He saw what was inside their true spiritual needs. He didn't just see their physical needs. He saw their spiritual needs. And so that's why in verse 36 it says he felt compassion for them. Splunk nidzomai. Use that verb over lunch today. Splonknizomai comes from a word splonkna, which means your guts, your intestines, your bowels. It's your seat of your emotions. You've used terminology like this before. I have this gut feeling about something. You ever said that? Why? Because you, you sense something in your gut. I hope you haven't said this, but I, I, I hate this person with all my guts. What are you saying? At the very inner core of who you are, at the very seat of your emotions, that's the idea. It's a a saying that means to feel deep sympathy for something or compassion for something or to be moved in your stomach, in your guts with pity and compassion towards someone. You may be interested to know that this verb is only used of Christ in the New Testament. Matthew 14, 14, he felt compassion. Matthew 15, 32, Jesus says, I feel compassion for the multitudes. Matthew 20, verse 34, and moved with compassion. Remember Lazarus says he was deeply moved at the thought of his good friend Lazarus dying to the point that it says Jesus wept. So what you have here is is a divine compassion for troubled people. And so just imagine this. Jesus is out there and he's ministering and he's serving and he's putting the needs of others before himself and he's dying to his own selfish, not selfish, but his own desires. He's even willing to do the Father's will. 
And everywhere he looks and everywhere he sees, desperate needs. And he feels it deeply. A few weeks ago in our theology class, we've talked about the difference between passability and impassibility. We said that God is impassable. God does not have emotions like we have emotions. He has affections. He can be joyful. He can rejoice. He can be angry and be a God of wrath. But he doesn't have emotions like we have them. And the reason for this is because when we are emotional creatures, we tend to be overcome by emotions. You, you, you fall into love, right? It's like this thing just came over me and I just couldn't help myself and I fell into this or these kinds of ideas where we are suddenly under the sway of our emotions. We're overcome with rage. We're subject to shifting moods. God is not like this. God is impassable. He's not subject to passing emotions. But in Christ, you have an impassable God in a passable person. Think about this. Jesus in his divinity had the uh, faculty of impassibility and yet in his humanity he had the faculty of passability. He felt things in his human faculties. He felt emotional things. This is because he's 100% God and 100% man and so in his humanity he's looking over the crowds and he's seeing the masses and he's seeing their horrible state. And it says in verse 36, he felt compassion for them. And why did he feel compassion for them? Because verse 36 says they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. You might have a different version. There's a number of translations to those two words, distressed and dispirited. Could be harassed and helpless. Or it could be weary and scattered or troubled and abandoned. There's all kinds of English words that try to capture the essence of these ideas. But Jesus looks on the crowds and he sees them as distressed and dispirited people. Distressed, meaning to be ripped apart, to be battered and bruised. And it was Jesus is looking over the crowds, that's what he's seeing. Battered, bruised, people. The next word dispirited means to be downcast or to be thrown down or to be utterly helpless. And Jesus sees these crowds. He sees the masses. And he sees them not only physically struggling, he sees them spiritually destitute. This is a subtle rebuke to the Jewish leaders who should have been shepherding them and feeding them and protecting them and caring for them and leading them. They were horrible shepherds. Just read Ezekiel 34. That's what they were doing. They were abusing the sheep, laying heavy burdens on the people. They weren't serving the sheep and loving the sheep and caring for the sheep. They were actually taking advantage of the sheep. 
And Jesus looks out and he sees them helpless, vulnerable, like real sheep, without a shepherd. Sheep need shepherds. Sheep can't find food without a shepherd. Sheep can't be protected without a shepherd. Sheep can't be led anywhere without a shepherd. And when sheep become downcast, they're in deep trouble. Do you know what a cast sheep is? Listen to Philip Keller in his book about Psalm 23 describe a cast sheep. He says, quote, a cast sheep is a very pathetic sight. Normally what happens is a heavy, fat, or long-fleeced sheep will lie down comfortably in some little hollow or depression in the ground. It may roll on its side to stretch out or relax, and suddenly the center of gravity in the body shifts so that it turns on its back far enough so that the feet no longer touch the ground. It may feel a sense of panic and start to paw frantically. This only makes things worse and it rolls over even further, making it virtually impossible for it to regain its feet. Imagine a sheep on its back, legs sticking straight up in the air. That's a cast sheep. He says buzzards, vultures, dogs, coyotes, and cougars all know that a cast sheep is easy prey and death is not far off. The sheep is helpless vulnerable to attack, and so if the owner does not arrive on the scene within a reasonably short time, the sheep will die. This is the I've fallen and I can't get up sheep. (laughs) And if they're there for much longer than a few minutes, they're dead. And Jesus looks over the crowds and the multitudes and he sees spiritually cast sheep totally helpless totally unable to do anything about their spiritual condition no one to lead them no one to shepherd them no one to care for them and his heart breaks for people that are helpless. And that's why it says in verse 36, he felt compassion because they were distressed and dispirited. Jesus felt this way deep down. Now do you recognize the heart of our Savior? I think sometimes we sanitize the gospel. Yeah, Jesus came, died on the cross for my sins, and now I'm saved and I'm forgiven and going to heaven. Do you realize the heart that drove this? Heart of deep compassion. Tender, tender heart for people who could do absolutely nothing to remedy their state. Friends, that's us. We're the cast sheep, spiritually. We're on our backs, flailing around, 
with no ability to right ourselves spiritually, no ability to make ourselves acceptable to a holy God, no ability to make ourselves get into heaven, that's us. And Jesus looks upon us with pity and mercy and grace. And if you're here today and you know the Lord Jesus Christ, don't take it for granted. You've been rescued by a loving shepherd who saw you floundering in your helpless estate. Actually, Ephesians 2 says we were dead. Friends, don't take this for granted. Don't overlook the heart of our Savior for you. And if you're here today and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, you need to understand that his heart is for you. This, this is the same heart for you. He's not a mean God. He's not a wicked God. He's not a merciless Savior who's here to pound you and hurt you and lay a bunch of heavy restrictions and, and demands upon you. That's not what he's like. His heart is tender towards you. There's another implication of this. Do you see the people in your life without Christ this way? I know, it's hard. Think, think right now, who, who are the people in your life who don't know Christ? Who are they? Who, who are the people in your family, your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, your schoolmates? Think about them right now. Here's the human fleshly response. They bother me. I don't like them. They irritate me. They hurt me. What are they supposed to do? They're lost. That's how lost sheep act. And so do you focus on the problems? Do you focus on the way they, they've treated you? Do you focus on the, the things that irritate you about them? Or do you have the heart of your Savior? And do you look on them with compassion? If they don't know Christ, do you look upon them as one in need of a Savior? And does your heart go out to them? You see how this changes our perspective? You see how this changes our attitude toward the people in our life that sometimes just get on our nerves? Do you see them as Christ sees them? Do you pray for them? Do you see them as needing new birth and new life? And do you look for opportunities to speak to them about Christ? You're an ambassador. 2 Corinthians 5.20, you're an ambassador. 2 Corinthians 5.19, you've been given the ministry of reconciliation. Spurgeon said it this way, have you no wish for others to be saved? Then you are not saved yourself. Be sure of that. Number three, the concern of Christ for faithful laborers. Number one is the commitment of Christ to God's mission. Number two is the compassion of Christ for the distressed people. 
Number three is the concern of Christ for faithful laborers. Jesus looks across the crowds, the masses. He sees a whole field of lost people. And he knows that in order for the gospel mission to succeed, there must be an evangelistic force that goes out into that field. There there must be a a group of people, an army of believers who will go into that field, who will go into that region, who will go into those lost people's lives, who are willing to get their feet dirty and smell like sheep, to permeate the flocks and see some of them come to know him. Notice verse 37. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful but the workers are few. Jesus changes the analogy from sheep and shepherds to farming and harvests. And the people of that day who would have been hearing these things would have clearly understood exactly what Jesus is referring to. They were living in an agrarian culture. They would have understood this analogy without any trouble. When he says the harvest is plentiful. He's thinking that the fields are ripe. You've seen fields like that. You've driven by in October when, when the fields are bursting with corn and beans, apples, cherries here in Michigan. You drive by the orchards and you see those trees just laden with apples or the crops just full of harvestable fruit and vegetables. What happens if you have no one to pick them? What if there's not a team of people to go into the fields? Some people would say the harvest here is the judgment. He says the harvest is plentiful. Some would take that as the harvest being the judgment when Christ comes and destroys all the wicked. There's a sense in which that's true. We're going to see that in Matthew chapter 13 as we look at the kingdom parables. But I think in this sense, he's actually just referring to the harvest of people who are ripe for salvation. I think that's the harvest here. He's speaking of a spiritual harvest of souls that are ripe for conversion. If only there'd be some people who would go into the field and share the gospel with them. He's talking about lost people, lost souls who desperately need to hear the gospel and come to faith in Christ if there were only people to bring that message to them. That's the harvest. I said a few minutes ago, Jesus was referring not only to the people of his day, but our day, because the reality is the same today. It's no different. The harvest is ripe today. And in about an hour, you're going to walk out those doors. And you're walking into your mission field. Today, some of you are going to go to families, houses, friends. Tomorrow, you're going to get up and you're going to go to work. And every person you rub shoulders with is a mission field. Every single person that you have an opportunity to engage who does not know the Lord Jesus Christ is part of this ripe harvest 
and some of them are going to come to Christ. You realize that? God has elected and chosen some of them to be his, and he uses means to reach them, and those means might be you. But sometimes we, we fall back on our laurels because we haven't seen anyone come to Christ in a long time, and so in the back of our minds, we start to think that this never happens. We start to doubt whether there's power in the gospel, and we fail to do what God has called us to do, and so we rest back and we, we don't engage the lost people around us But Jesus is telling us here, the harvest is ripe. It's plentiful. There will be people who come to faith in Christ. Because the harvest is plentiful. But there's a problem. Verse 37, workers are few. There's not many workers Can you see what Jesus is doing? Can you see how this fits to the next chapter? As he's about ready to commission the disciples, at this point it's just him. And so if he's going to make an impact in the world with the gospel, there must be an army of missionaries alongside of him who take that saving message of Jesus Christ into that ripe harvest. And so in chapter 10, he's going to commission them and he's going to send them and he's going to say, go out and bring the gospel. You see, it's a setup for the next chapter. It's a preparation for the very thing that we're going to see starting next week. But it's not just for his day. It's for our day as well. Who's going to reach the mass of people who need to hear? Who's going to take the message of the gospel? Who's going to tell people their condition? Who's going to preach to them the bad news so they can then hear the good news? Who's going to share with them Christ's love, Christ's compassion, his work on the cross? There are few workers today for this. Who's going to do it? More teachers are needed, more preachers are needed, more pastors are needed, more missionaries are needed, and every single ordinary Christian like us is needed. Say, I I, I can't do that. I can't go to the mission field. Okay, that's fine. You don't have to go to the mission field. Some of you need to. Some of you sitting here today listening to my voice, some of you need to go to the mission field. I'm talking overseas. I'm talking somewhere out of this country. I'm saying someone in this room, someone who's listening online, someone who is here hearing these words needs to go. You need to go to Bible college. You need to go to seminary. You need to put as many tools in your tool belt as you can so you can take this transforming message to the, to the ends of the earth. Who's going to go? You say, I I can't do that. Okay, that's fine. Not everyone needs to go, but can you give financially to it? Can you support those who do go? You say, well, i got limited resources and I can't go. Okay, that's fine. You can't go and you maybe can't give much, but do you pray? When's the last time you prayed for God to raise up workers to send to the harvest? When is the last time you asked the Lord to bring people raise people up, send them out. This is the great need of the hour. And if you can't go and you can't give, you can pray. 
and you all have a mission field. There's lost people in your life at home. There's lost people in your life at work. There's lost people at life in your neighborhood. That's your mission field. God wants to use you. And if you don't, who will? If you don't speak to the people in your sphere of influence, who will? You might be the only flavor of Christ, the only aroma of Christ those people will ever hear. So will you be this kind of worker? Lord, send me. Number four, the call of Christ to evangelistic prayer. The call of Christ to evangelistic prayer, verse 38, therefore, in light of all of this, in light of the ripe harvests, in light of the fact that there are very, very few workers, therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. The phrase Lord of the harvest, that's a reference for God. God is the Lord of the harvest. He is the one who brings people into his kingdom. He is the one who draws sinners to himself. He is the Lord of the harvest. Jesus says, you go to him, you approach him, you approach the throne of grace, and you beseech it. You plead with God. You beg God. You entreat God. You go before the Lord with a sense of urgency in your heart, and you say, Lord, would you please send Someone. That's the idea here. There's an implication of presumed need. Lord, I'm coming before you. There's people in my life that don't know you. There are people in this world that don't know you. Lord, there is a desperate need. Would you please do whatever it takes to raise up the people that need to go tell those people? Only God saves sinners, only God draws sinners, only God redeems sinners, only by sovereign grace does anyone come to faith in Jesus Christ, but he uses means. And the means are prayer and people. Someone has well said, quote, God's goal to be glorified will not succeed without the powerful proclamation of the gospel. And that gospel will not be proclaimed in power to all the nations without the prevailing, earnest, faith-filled prayers of God's people. So are you praying, Maranatha? Are you praying for God to raise up people here? Are you praying for our seminary students? Some who've already enlisted and said, I I, want to go. I want to be used of the Lord. Are you praying for them? And are you praying for God to bring more seminary students? And are you praying for God to raise up an army of missionaries here? And are you praying for God to raise up ordinary Christians, like all of us sitting here, saying, Lord, use us. Extend your kingdom through us. Is that how you pray? Or do you just pray to get a raise and pass your test? Let's not be known for shallow prayers. Let's storm the gates of heaven. Let's go before the Lord and plead with him as Jesus tells us to do here. Lord, do whatever it takes to see people come into your kingdom. And I'll tell you what happens. When you start praying that way, you might become the answer to your own prayer.
You can't pray like that and then say, Lord, send someone else, not me. You see, when you pray that way, you put yourself at the disposal of the Lord. And you say, Lord, I don't know what you have for me, but I want to make this short life count for eternity. Use me in any way possible. I'm not eloquent. I'm not a noble person. Well, welcome to the crowd. None of us are. Are you willing? Are you praying? Are you praying for people by name? And do you have compassion for others like Christ? You see, this is what it's like to be devoted to people. And let's face it, we get wrapped up in our little worlds, our little kingdoms. We get wrapped up in our job and our finances and our retirement and our careers and our image. That becomes our identity, and that, that stuff needs to not become our identity. What, what's our identity is we are ambassadors for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, use us to draw as many people to yourself as possible in this short life you've given us. Beloved, is that your heart? Is that your heart? Are you devoted to people like that? Let's pray this way for our church. Let's pray, Lord, use me to save others. And let's watch and see what he does. Lord, we thank you for this challenge. We need this. Lord, we need this desperately because sometimes we're too myopic. Sometimes we get navel-gazing and we lose sight of what really matters for eternity. Lord, there's a lost and dying world. People desperate, needing salvation. Lord, would you use us? Let us hold the things of this earth with an open hand. Let us remember our citizenship is in heaven and mobilize us, send us out, raise us up, send forth more missionaries from this church to the glory of Christ and the salvation of souls. It's in your son's name we pray, amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.